Welcome to Gen Z Money, episode 39. No, I don't. I truly don't mind the debt. You know, now with the most recent property, I'm several hundred thousand dollars in debt, but it's good debt. And you have to look at the bank as your partner. Look at it as someone that's going in with you on the deal. Don't necessarily look at the bank as evil, which most people probably do look at banks as quite evil and vicious. But for us investors, the bank is our friend. The bank is our partner in the deal. And as long as the deal works, again, if the numbers don't work now, they're not going to work in the future. So don't try to force that deal. If the deal works now, it will probably work in the future because rents rise you know, at a faster pace than your mortgage payment will combined with the uh, interest taxes and insurance. So. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Gen Z Money Podcast, where we turn financial peace to your reality. Those who are watching on YouTube or on Facebook or even watching this on Instagram, you might notice a little difference. I actually set up a whole new studio where I painted the wall. I got a few other things. And although it's not complete, we're getting there slowly but surely. I got a new microphone, new headset, new camera, so we are rocking and rolling. I really appreciate all of you guys who have been supporting the podcast up to this point, so it's definitely time to make some upgrades. And I just want to let you know, guys, even though my intro might have a different background, a lot of these upcoming episodes were recorded before I upgraded the studio, so you'll see a little bit of difference there, and there might be a little bit of sound difference there, but I hope you guys don't mind. You know, I can't do it all at once. But as you guys know, this show is not about me. It is about our guests. And today's guest, I bring on Logan. Logan has been through everything. He's Gen Z just like me, but he has tried absolutely everything to try and get rich. He's tried day trading. He's tried swing trading. He's tried affiliate, affiliate marketing. And where he's landed is real estate. And y'all know I'm a real estate guy. I love me some real estate. But he, you're going to hear throughout his story, he has learned that there really is no get rich quick thing. You know, getting wealthy is a very long and slow process. And it takes a lot of hard work for a very long time to do. So it's great to see that he's gotten away from the get rich quick stuff. And now he's truly starting to build wealth. And you guys are going to hear that. But without further ado, I actually I don't want to give away his whole story. So let's just jump right into the interview. Before we get into the interview, let's hear a quick word from today's show sponsors. What's going on, Logan? Welcome to the Gen Z Money Podcast, man. How are you doing today? Great to be here. I appreciate you letting me on and uh, sharing our experiences and uh, talking everything money. Absolutely. Everything money, man. And, uh, really, what, what interests me about your story is real estate, because, you know, I, I like money, but I love me some real estate. Right. So I've been checking out all you. I've checked out your Instagram, your YouTube, and, you know, you kind of dabble in a little bit of everything when it comes to this money space. So let's just start back from the pure beginning. Let's go 10-year-old Logan, fifth grade, 10-year-old okay. Logan. How was money talked about and viewed as you grew up? Definitely, you know, some semblance of importance, um, but not necessarily financial literacy uh, with having these big goals and a large mindset where anything is really attainable. 
um, was pretty limited and constricted to, you know, just the normal process of getting through life, going to college and, and working for decades and uh, doing the nine to five. That was just sort of the, the mindset and limitations that at least were put on me, whether it was through in the household or society in general or school, definitely not as big of a thinker as I am now. Gotcha. So break that down a little bit. Cause you kind of, you kind of threw that over my head a little bit. What do you mean? Uh, were your parents, cause you're, you're, you're young, you're Gen Z. I'm pretty sure. Yep. yep. At, yeah. So you're Gen Z. So what were your parents? Were they W2 workers? Were they entrepreneurs? What was that like? Mom was in, what well, is still, you know, doing the nine to five and uh, dad, did do the nine to five before I was born, but then was more so a stay-at-home father. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. Um, he, he hadn't worked uh, before last year. He hadn't worked since probably the 90s or early 2000s. Um, but, you know, he actually did have an interest in doing anything else, but other than the nine to five, right? Trying to do an online business or trying to make something work online. And that definitely, uh, you know, bit, that, that bug sort of bit me as far as the entrepreneur bug. So he definitely had, that, that higher mindset in mind. Uh, but unfortunately he couldn't really make it work for him. Um, so he was just more so a stay at home father, not really, uh, you know, didn't really get anything going too much. Gotcha. And I, I, I'm sorry for your loss, um, with that. So where does your money story truly begin? Like what age did you realize like, okay, there's something more than working nine to five. There's something more than retiring at 65. Like where does that journey actually begin? Yeah, I would definitely say it started with magic. I, I'm a magician, still am, and I, you know, I do magic shows. So, and I did my first magic show probably around 10, 11 years old. I think I made like 60 bucks for that. And then I also, you know, for the next few years after that, before doing like steady gigs, I would do just magic on the street by me and just collect tips or I would just do it around locally and people would throw some money at me, whether it was a few dollars. I remember, you know, $20 tip being the world at the time uh, as a young teen. And that really got me going. And that was really the impetus, I would say, then around, you know, 14, 15, I then started to experimenting with uh, trading stocks and actually putting my money to work. So, you know, I opened up my first bank account, I remember, with like 250 bucks, which is cash saved up for magic. And then I got into stock, uh, stock trading, lost a lot of money with that. And, you know, I screwed up a lot early and made a big, some big, big mistakes. But luckily, uh, those mistakes happened early on. Okay, so uh, hopefully there's no federal agents watching. I'm going to ask you this, and you don't have to answer it, but uh, <laughs> it's illegal for a 15-year-old to trade stocks? I, I, I honestly don't know. Right, right. Technically not. I had a custodial account, so no worries there. The gotcha. agents watching. So, so, okay, you had a custodial account, so your mother was overseeing this, or your parents were overseeing this, I assume. Wink, wink. Got it, got it. Okay, yeah. so you start this entrepreneurship thing at 10 years old as a magician. By the way, congratulations, first magician on the podcast. So awesome. You, you start this entrepreneurship thing at 10 years old, and you start saving up money. And by 15, you're like, you know what? I'm going to dabble in stocks in a little bit. And you quickly mentioned like you started losing a lot of money. Talk about that. Like what made you decide to start day trading and what made you decide to yep. maybe that's not the best career choice for you? Well, I think it was just the internet. Uh, you know, I, I was on the internet very, very early on from a little kid. So I guess, uh, you know, social media and, and seeing what was actually possible. If you think about it, you know, social media obviously gets a bad reputation, but never before have we had this uh, experience and exposure whether you know it's it's fitness goals or money goals or 
you know, people doing a lot more than us, you know, back then decades ago, the only exposure you had was really the people around you. And so I think the internet exposed me to actually what is truly possible to do with your money and, uh, you know, what, what, what big goals you could actually attain. And yeah, so stock trading, yeah, I definitely dabble in that, you know, just seeing people, other people do it and making money with it. So obviously I followed suit and it's not as easy, obviously, as it's purported to be. Lost a lot of money, blew up a lot of accounts, probably a few thousand dollars of, you know, just saving, savings pretty much gone, wiped out. And a lot of people have a moment, I would imagine later on in life where, you know, they're pretty hopeless and desperate. I had that at like 14, I had my head down, like, what am I going to do with my life? So I, I really, I was a lot ahead of, ahead of at least people around me and I had a lot of people uh, my age. Gotcha. So, you know, and it, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I hate to say it like this, but it's kind of a blessing that you hit rock bottom yeah. so early yeah, because yeah. a lot of people don't hit their, let's call it rock bottom until their thirties, forties, fifties, retirement, things like that. So having it at 14 yeah. is somewhat of a blessing. So you, you start day trading, you realize, you know what, this probably isn't for me. I'm not the best that I'm not talented at it. Um, and, but you have, you've discovered that the world information and education is readily at your fingertips. And Absolutely. So you have the entire world of education like on your phone. So what did you decide to do after realizing you're like, you know what? I just lost all my savings day trading. What's next? Yep. So at the time, you know, also with day trading, I did some drop shipping, some affiliate marketing. And that was when I was really starting to get into online business and so like my, my first ever, uh, you know, as far as doing like affiliate marketing, I would actually show a magic trick and how it was done and then put the affiliate link to that trick down below in the description. And I don't think I was able to get any sales at that age. I don't think I got anything. So that's why I was pretty upset. But uh, I did that for a while. I, I tried data training for a long time. You know, I didn't, I didn't give up at it. I tried it probably from like 14 to 16, uh, you know, even, even in high school, uh, you know, even during, during like tests, I would look at my phone to see what the charts are doing and see my money was up or down. And then that kind of turned into swing trading and say, okay, this is kind of crazy. I'm not going to just be looking at the charts and absorbed by this uh, all 24 hours of the day. So let me try some swing trading that didn't work out. So uh, then I think it was around like late 16, 17. I said, okay, I have to do like a long-term investing plan and uh, you know, have to have to just have this 10, 20, 30 year picture. Um, that's how long I should have my money in the market. And I shouldn't be looking at the intraday charts and what the, what the charts are doing every second of the day. Gotcha. Well, I do want to point out that I think that it's very powerful and I think it's worth noting that you tried it and you realized maybe this isn't for me and you didn't just give up. You didn't throw up your hands and say, you know what? Uh, America's rigged. The American dream's dead. You know, I'm going to Cambodia, whatever the case is, whatever people say. Uh, really quickly, though, because I don't know this, and I'm sure there's listeners out there that also don't know this. What is the difference between swing trading and day trading? Day trading is, as the, as the title says, you know, intraday. You're probably not holding a stock for more than 24 hours. If, if you're doing it for more than 24 hours, it's probably no more than 36 hours until, you know, the next the market opens if you're holding it from Friday to Monday. And then swing trading is more uh, medium term, you know, a few weeks, a few months. And so that's what I thought was going to be the secret strategy to uh, getting rich. And that was really just going to be the plan is, uh, you know, when I got into long-term investing, that was really the plan before real estate was just putting everything I made, putting into the market, rinsing, repeating, and just holding it. And then maybe by the age of 40, 50, you know, maybe I'll have a few million dollars, maybe, maybe uh, eight figures. And uh, now I'm here with 
seven figures in real estate at 21. So, and then, you know, also uh, while I was doing the day trading, I was just blowing money, whether it was horse racing, scratch off lottery, you know, I tried it all. I was obviously trying to get rich quick overnight. <laughs> I love that, man. So, okay. So you try, I, I like this. I, I like this. So you try the day trading and it's fast yep. paced and you're watching charts and you're like, eh, you know what this is for me. So you're like, I'm going to spread my horizon out a little bit longer. So instead of day trading, I'm going to weekly trade if, if that's a swing trade. And you're like, okay, yeah, this isn't working out either. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to try long-term. I don't want to skip to the end of your story, but I assume yep. I'm going to, I'm going to assume and I don't know why I would assume this, but I assume that it's working out a little bit better than the first two. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. In fact, I would say that long-term investing in the stock market was the really the first time I had ever made you know consistent money in the stock market was doing it long-term. So long-term always wins. You know, it's always time in the market and not timing the market, and that's super important. And unfortunately, while our generation is super savvy with technology and everything, it seems that they seem to be the generation of impatience with uh, you know trying to get something done overnight and they just don't see the the bigger picture of that we're going to live to a very very long age medicine has never been as good as it is now and we have lots of time all right guys i want to put it on the record logan said it not me so when you comment to the comments i'm going to have his information in the show notes. y'all can yell at him right he called y'all impatient i i said y'all just don't have delayed gratification i said it a little bit <laughs> i said a little bit more eloquently Okay, but Logan, I actually want you- A little more blunt, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love it though, I love it. And so, but I really want you to talk to the people because I know people in the real world that are trying to get rich doing what you did. And they haven't yet decided, they just think that, you know what? Um, it's a numbers game. One day I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna put my life savings in this. One day I'm going to hit. And we know that, that doesn't always happen. So if you could talk to that person who keeps saving up money and losing it all, saving it up money, losing it all, yep. trying to get rich quick, whether it's in a specific cryptocurrency that's going to blow up overnight or a simple, uh, NFT that's going to 100x, what would you say to that person in particular to get them to come over to the dark side of long-term uh, investing? I like it. I like it. So there's nothing wrong with investing in crypto or the next hottest thing, the next shiny object. Nothing wrong with putting your money in an FT. It's just, you have to understand that when you're putting the, your money in these pretty high risk speculative investments, that you have to pretend that that money does not exist anymore. And you have to essentially say to yourself, I, I can afford to lose all of this. So there's nothing wrong with investing in crypto, nothing wrong with investing in an FT. Just make sure that that is disposable income that you can afford to lose. So definitely don't put your whole life to savings in it. Unfortunately, as we've come to learn and a lot of people painfully learned it from experience, Bitcoin crypto is just simply not stable and there's just not a proven track record as does many other investments have. Um, so Bitcoin, we just saw, it's now about 70% down. The stocks I, in, I invested in before putting into real estate doesn't do that. The real estate doesn't do that. Putting your money into something that has the potential to lose 70%, then you even see with a coin like Terra Luna losing 99.99% of its value going from over $100 to 0. 0.000 and change. It's just not stable and you just can't count on it as a long-term investment and it shouldn't be called a long-term investment either. It's just, it's just speculation. I yep. mean, it, it's, it's almost as bad as going, going to the casino, which is fine. Um, I like to look at it as it's not a wealth building technique, but you can definitely make money 
there's no one that with a logical mind that can argue that buying crypto, buying NFTs has the possibility to make you money. But there is an argument to be made on whether it builds long-term wealth because it just hasn't been around long enough to have the data to support it. Okay, so you decide, Logan, you decide, you know what? All right, guys, I am done with this short-term stuff. I'm done with this medium stuff. I'm going long-term. Where did you start with the long-term investing? Yep. So I would say probably around, I'd probably say around 17 years old is when I first started doing long-term investing with S&P 500 index funds, REITs. And that was really my first exposure to real estate was an REIT. I also tried to fundrise. I'm not sure if you heard of that, uh, but that's also like a real estate online investing platform where of course you're not actually holding real estate, but you're putting money in a, in a market fund, in a market money market, and uh, they're doing it for you and they're paying out the profits. And I also had a few blue chip stocks, right? Like Microsoft, Apple, I had, I had those in a pretty diverse portfolio and overall, you know, not very risky at all. And, but also, you know, 16, 17, 18 is when I was really building my online business and scaling that up. So it was around, I would say 10th to 11th grade that I decided that I wasn't gonna go to college. So I did not attend college and really the rest is history. And then of course the pandemic happened, but we'll get there in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So what year, what year is this that you're set? uh, I'm really bad at math sometimes. So you're 23 now. Uh, Well, I'll be, I'll be 22 in November. 22. So you're 21 right now. Yep. 17 would have been three to four years ago. So we're looking at 2019, 2018, around that time frame that you started 2019, 2019, let's just call it 2019. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 20, okay. I would say 2018, 2019. Yep. Okay. Let's let's just for fun sakes, let's call it 2019, the year before 2020. That's what I like to refer to it as. Because I also I, I can relate to that. I can, you know, that's when I started investing. <laughs> so let's talk about 2020. Let's just let's get it out there. Um you know, you just started into this long-term investing thing and then 2020 hits, March of 2020. You've been doing it for a a good amount of time. And I'm sure that you've been absorbing all the content that says, you know what, never sell, you know, buy the dip, uh, don't jump off the roller coaster early. So you're absorbing all this content that's saying this and then March of 2020 hits. Walk us through the emotions you were feeling. Was there confidence there? Was there fear was it what, what was that like for you definitely a mix and you know so at that point i had been long-term investing for about like a year and a half uh call it middle of 2018 and then i distinctly remember like march 2020 as you said uh you know there would be one day down like eleven thousand dollars in the portfolio then the next day would be like another five thousand next day like another seven thousand so it was just every single day plummeting plummeting um surprisingly i wasn't even in the negative at any point i don't think and luckily the market did recover within a few months. So we are grateful for that. And yeah, I did. I was, I was pretty confident that the market was going to recover. I thought this was a short-term thing. I didn't think it was going to last up until now uh, as far as COVID itself, but I was pretty confident that the market was going to bounce back and not to panic sell. So I, I didn't panic sell any of my stocks or funds and I did hold through it, but my income did take a massive hit and I lost probably 50% of my income as well as future income that I'll never, ever get back, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in income that I'll never be able to recover and still building back that income. And uh, that was truly the impetus to get into real estate. And that's kind of where the real estate story starts. 
Okay, so let's talk. Let's let's go ahead again. I love that segue. Perfect segue. So yeah. where? Um, so after I, I assume it's after March of 2020, you discover real estate. How did you come across that? Because it seems like you're jumping across all these different investing types as you're uh, growing, evolving, learning more, which is a good thing. I want to point out that's a good thing to continue to um, diversify. So how, how did that begin? Yep. So I always had real estate in the back of my mind. I remember as early as probably 16, 17, while also learning about stocks and the market and losing money with day trading. I had also been doing research on real estate on the side. But to me at the time, it was unfathomable to be able to buy a house that was just so intimidating. I couldn't imagine ever imagine buying a house that just something that looks so unattainable and so out of reach. And so I distinctly remember like junior, senior year of high school, while we were reading, we were supposed to read the English book. I had Art of the Deal and rental property investing books. Instead, I had those open and you couldn't really tell the pages. They looked the same as the other book. And so that was just something in the back of my mind. I didn't think I was going to get into real estate, probably another five, 10 years down the road. Maybe when I'm 30, I'll, I'll put my money in real estate. But for now, you know, it's just going to be stocks for many, many years to come. And with the income taking a big hit, I thought, you know what, now is a good time. Interest rates are very low. And I had a lot of money saved up. Thankfully, again, I didn't panic sell anything. So I had all this cash in the market, in the stock market that I'd hoarded uh, throughout many years of high school and then, then after, after graduating. And so, you know, I had the funds, I had the resources to do it. I had enough knowledge. Obviously, I went all out when it was finally time to jump in. And yeah, you know, I, I revisited a lot of those books and revisited a lot of the courses and videos I had watched previously. And it was just the right time to do it. So I, I started looking at houses and actually started putting in offers like late 2019. I would say December 2019 is when I looked at my first property, or rather, sorry, December of 2020. Gotcha. So can you recall, because I think that that is the emotions you felt with buying a home being so, you know, gigantic and so unfathomable is the word you used. Can you explain why you thought that was? Was it the purchase price? Did you have like imposter syndrome? What was it that made it so intimidating to do? Mm -hmm. I just, you know, just no one in the family had ever done real estate. And it just was something that I had never had exposure to besides putting money in REITs and, and, uh, and Fundrise. And it just seemed so out of reach, the fact that you could put a down payment on it, attain the mortgage. I thought I would never, ever, ever be able to qualify for a mortgage my entire life, or at least until much older. So um, it was definitely the purchase price, the down payment, obtaining the mortgage, finding the property, getting the deal, making sure cash flows. And then obviously the fear of holding the real estate as well that something can go wrong. So we, you know, I'm sure everyone, all early real estate investors before buying their first property, they had hundreds, if not thousands of questions and fears of what if this happens? What if this goes sideways? What if the deal doesn't work? What if I lose everything? And so, you know, there's all those looming questions that made it so intimidating. Luckily I did though, I also was uh, disciplined with building up my credit. So after, shortly after I turned 18, I started building my credit, got my first secured credit card. So I had the credit, I had the money and I was just getting the knowledge and and learning everything I needed to know. And, you know, you're not always, you're always going to have some unanswered questions. You're not going to be able to know everything. It's really about jumping in and, and actually getting the experience. You're not going to get that experience from just learning something on the internet or reading something in a book. So it's actually about doing it and, and executing. I, I love that you brought that up because I think that a lot of people are overeducated when it comes to real estate and buying a home. Like there's only really so much you need to know. You know, you don't need to know how to open up an LLC. You don't need to know how to build a trust. You don't have to do all these things to purchase real estate, like to actually purchase a property. So let's walk through that first property purchase. 
Um, yep. How was it acquired? Did you find it on the MLS or I know during 2020, it was somewhat competitive. Um, uh, December, I guess we were still under some uncertainty in the market. Definitely not like 2021. So how was that buying process? Where did you find it? Is it out of state, in state? How, how'd that look? Yep. So I looked at, I believe it was two houses, December 2020, and then January 2021. I looked at a couple of houses and I did put some offers on some houses. This was all just on the MLS is where I found these properties. I just went through an agent and unfortunately none of those offers got accepted. Finally, I did get an offer accepted and I was smart though. I had that pre-approval ready. So I knew to go to the bank first and get that pre-approval using a local credit union. And so it was, again, you know, that deal was on the MLS, 20% down conventional loan. And interestingly though, I didn't even have any tax returns because I was still being claimed as a dependent by my parents. So I didn't even have any tax returns to be able to show that income. So I actually had to at once file both my 2019 and 2020 tax returns, which was a big hit, you know, paying all those taxes and then the occurring fees and penalties that come with it for paying late. Um, so that's how I was able to uh, get that conventional financing. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do a conventional loan. And I don't, I don't drive, so I don't even have a license or a permit. So it wasn't just really, it wasn't realistic for me to do something out of state. But I looked for opportunity on Long Island. Obviously, as you know, Long Island, New York is one of the most expensive markets in the country. But you know, if you look around, you could find the deals. And I had seen opportunity in far out, probably like an hour from me. The uh, eastern Suffolk County is the county that's next to my county. And I had seen that you know there were properties there for much lower than Nassau County. And so I thought that would be a good opportunity to buy. Gotcha. So you find, you know, you, you just dispelled a whole lot of myths with your story. Like, oh, there are no deals on the MLS. Well, that's not true. Oh, you can't buy in Long Island is New Jersey. Long Island, New York. So about New York. Long like well, yeah, you, Manhattan. Yep. Yeah. So, oh, you can't buy in New York. There's no cat. That's not true. So you're dispelling all of these myths with your story right now. So I love it. Um, oh, uh, mm, ah, the IRS. Let's talk about that for a second, if you don't mind. You said sure that. Thing. Yeah. So you said you had to go back in order to qualify for a mortgage. You had to go back. You had to file 2019 taxes and 2020 taxes, pay all those taxes and pay all the ta uh, interest, all of the penalties just to buy your first property. Yep. And of course, New York has one of the highest state income taxes in the nation. So that was a big hit as well, all on top of each other. And looking back, though, it might have not been the best idea because at the time, I didn't really know too much about uh, different types of financing. And I use this financing for my second property, a DSCR loan, where the bank doesn't even look at your tax returns and you just need good credit and can the property produce income. So I probably would have done a DSCR loan had I known about it at the time or at least wasn't scared to do other types of financing. Uh, but you know what, looking back, it's okay. It's okay that that was the case because I got a very good interest rate on it. At the time, I thought it was a higher interest rate, but looking back, that's a steal now and I would do anything to get those rates again. Yeah. Oh my God, I missed those rates too. Uh, I'm, I'm happy that I did lock in just like you. And for those yep. who do not know what he's referring to when he says DSCR loans, it's just a debt service coverage ratio loan. Basically, they look at the asset itself instead of the personal finances of the person purchasing the property. And a lot of times it's like 125% um, the rent needs to be 125% of the uh, P uh, principal interest taxes and insurance, 
Yeah, so usually with a DSCR loan, they need to see like a 1.1 to 1.25, what's called the coverage ratio that the that the projected rental income can cover the PITI. Yeah. And you will, you unfortunately, you won't get, you will get close to the interest rates of like conventional financing. It's a little bit higher in most cases. I mean, I'm no expert on this stuff, but it's a very, very strong. That's another thing that people might say is what happens when I get 10 properties, Logan, I can't do conventional financing. Right. Well, there's tons of different, yeah. DSCR are commercial loans and you can get commercial loans on residential properties, which we did. So you want to walk through the numbers of that first property real quick, uh, just rough ballpark. I know it's not going to be exact, but what what was the first property you bought? What did the numbers look like? Yep. And, you know, again, at the time, I thought that it was a high purchase price, but looking back, I would do anything once again to be able to purchase at that price again. So it's all, that's why it's always about, uh, you know, being, being in real estate for an extended period of time. And you want to, it's always about time in the market, not timing the market. There's never going to be that perfect time to buy. It's always great to just jump right in as soon as you can, because you just look, look how within just a year now, that property has gone up about 30, 40%. And at the time I thought I was overpaying for it. So that's why it's always about just jumping in and executing. So uh, that property after $2,000 credit was $213,000 and 20% down on that comes out to well, with closing costs and everything combined, it was about like 65,000 plus having cash and reserves. And I did help, I, you know, the money wasn't the, the issue. I did have all that because I had a couple hundred thousand dollars was like my peak uh, liquid money as far as the stock market before filing my taxes. So I had the funds and resources that wasn't a problem. And then as far as the loan, that interest rate, again, looks like a steal now is like three and a quarter and the cash flows very well. There's still a lot of room to raise rent, especially with today's rental market. And if I wanted to, you know, I could probably raise rent massively, but I'll, you know, I probably will raise rent when the, when this lease renews come the end of this year. Yeah. I love that, man. I think uh, a lot of people are looking at today's market and they're saying, Hey, these houses are overpriced. Wait for the crash. And I'm sitting here saying, listen, guys, the longer you wait, the more you're missing out on because we don't know when there there might, I can hundred percent say there will be a crash at some point, but it could be in one year. It could be in 12 years. It could be in 30 years. I don't know. So I'm just going to continue buying today and I can only control what I can control today. So I love that tip to like get into the market now and then worry about the other stuff later. As long as you're profiting, as long as you're building your net worth, even if it doesn't look like a steal right now, you know, it, it, it's yep. okay. Yep. So you purchased this first property, conventional financing, 20% down. Uh, what were your next moves? Did you go straight for more real estate? Were you dabbling into the market more, putting more in that? What, what direction are you going? Yep. So I really liked it. You know, I, I really enjoyed that first purchase and it felt like a big accomplishment. And I knew this is pretty much exactly what I want to do. I love real estate and I love, I understood the math, right? I, didn't do good in math. I, in fact, dropped out of a uh, math class in senior year because it was just too difficult for me. But this math, I understood. It all made sense. And I was pretty savvy at analyzing these deals within uh, within a few minutes. You know, I, I knew the market very well. And so I knew I wanted to go bigger for that next deal. And well, I think we should say first a story as far as getting the tenant with that, with that first property. Um, believe it or not, in this scenario, it was actually pretty lucky for my first deal. I would say I was fortunate because the owner that sold it to me that I bought it from actually wanted to stay in that property for some time because she had some arrangement with you know living somewhere else. And so she actually is, was going to rent it from me. 
And so she is currently still my tenant. I don't know if those living arrangements ever came to fruition or what's going on with that, but that's the story with that property that I already had a tenant lineup for me and it was a pretty turnkey property. So I would say I was pretty fortunate with that first deal that it, no headaches necessarily. I didn't even have to really go in and do anything. Just replace the water heater. Otherwise it was a pretty easy one, two, three deal. Uh, for the second one though, I knew I wanted to go bigger and I still had a boatload of money left over from having it in the stock market. And so I wanted to do at least two units of duplex. So next property in the summer of last year, I was able to get something under contract that needed a ton of work actually. It wasn't a full gut rehab renovation, but it needed a lot of updating and there were uh, both, both units were occupied and it needed a lot of updating. It was very old fashioned and some things wrong with it. But it, you know, I had a lot of money for that rehab, so I thought it'd be a great, great idea. And she purchased price, especially in that area. It's a very hot area of Suffolk County. And so I got it under contract. Unfortunately, though, we waited and waited, and the seller ultimately walked away from that deal. So I was pretty upset. Uh, that was frustrating because I thought it was going to be like a deal of a lifetime that I would be able to put X amount in, and the ARV would be Y amount. And so, um, you know, I just I just moved on. You know, unfortunately deals fall through. Unfortunately, not going to get everything exactly how you want it. And it's not always going to be the perfect, perfect deal. But like you said, as long as the numbers work, as long as the property cash flows, and as long as you're not over leveraging yourself, then, uh, then, you know, it, it will work now and it will probably work in the future. Gotcha. I, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of scratching my head a little bit on the seller is still your tenant. That, I mean, for you, that's awesome because you've had yeah. no, you've had no turnover, essentially. You've had no profit losses and you've had, seems as though minimal repairs. I just, I kind of feel bad for your tenant because they could- I be think about property. that too. Yeah, because had, had she just waited probably just one more year, she probably could have sold it, like I said, for 30, 40% more. So I think about that too, but that's why, uh, you know, that's the, invest, that's the investor mindset of seeing opportunity and, and seizing it. Yeah, and, and I know that there's going to be people that be like, oh, Logan's so evil. He took this person's home. No, she wanted to sell it. He didn't go in there with a gun and say, hey, you need to sell me your property. She wanted to sell it. She needed the money and she decided to stay. Like These are all choices that she made. And unfortunately, Logan is benefiting from the choices she made and she might be not benefiting from the choices she made. But again... Like no one is forced to do any of this. And nobody knew in December of 2020 what the market was doing. We were still in the peak of COVID. So people who sold out of fear, people who, it's the same thing with, with investing in the stock market. Like some people do things out of fear and you cannot, you cannot feel bad for the choices that other people make. You know, he's not taking advantage of anyone. If anything, him letting her stay, paying below market rent, He's doing yep. her a favor. So there are positive. There's our net positives on both sides. Logan is making money. His net worth is going up. She hasn't, she never had to move. She's still paying below market rent as if she compared to if she would have moved. So this is still a win-win situation. And Gosh. like I, like I said, but at the time and myself included, I thought paying $213,000 for that house was absolutely ridiculous. And I was overpaying and you know, that they, they carried a lot of risk. But like I said, looking back, it's a steal now. So if you asked probably any other investor in that area around, you know, that around that area, would you buy this house for 213? A lot of them probably would have said no. So she, she actually, I think, got a pretty considerably good deal at the time uh, when, when she sold, sold it to me. But now, obviously, with the massive appreciation of last year, now doesn't look like such a good deal anymore. Yeah, but I mean... 
hey, you gave her what she needed, and now you have what you need, man. I, I don't feel I don't feel bad at all. I think this is an awesome win-win for everybody. So, okay, so you said that you missed out on this property, um, but you acquired two more properties, if I'm not mistaken, between then and now. Is that right? Yep. So that was the first single family. That was the first unit. And then since then, I've acquired uh, three more units, the duplex. And then most recently, I just closed on another house on June 1st. June 1st. Okay. So very recently, last at yep. the time recording this, it was this month. So there are still deals out there. I, I actually just fell out of contract on a deal, unfortunately. I think my realtor hasn't responded, but I think we're going to be falling out of contract because just the deal didn't work out. The seller. Uh, it's just, it, I don't want to go into it. I don't want to talk bad about anybody. So um, these properties, these three units total, uh, are you managing them yourself or are you property managers or how are you going about that? Yep. It's four, four units total, three properties. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I can't do math. A duplex all good there. single families. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So uh, yeah, all self-managed. You know, I certainly thought about getting a property manager, especially for that second property being it was a duplex. But you know what? That duplex is very close to me, very local. So it's really, truly not a headache to manage it myself. And so, you know, the, the other two properties, the first and the most recent one, those are about an hour away. And like I said, I don't even drive. So uh, for if anyone is going to manage a property, it probably isn't going to be me. But I thought, you know, it would be a good idea to get the experience and the hands-on experience of learning. And also, obviously, property management cuts into your profits. And with how expensive property is on the round, you want to get every dollar necessary that you can because even just a tiny percentage could wipe away a lot of your profit margin. So uh, that's why I wanted to just manage it myself and not reach out and do outsource a, a property manager. Uh, but probably, probably after a few more units, I'll probably reach out to a property manager, especially if I get something uh, that's more than two units, like a triplex or fourplex or hopefully commercial property in the not so distant future. Awesome. Awesome. And so what has been your experience? Because, you know, Everybody's got that uncle that say, oh, I'm not buying a property. You know, you'll be changing toilets at 2 a.m. And you'll get, yeah. you know, the roof caving in every night. The roof's going to cave in. And so what has been your experience managing them? Have the tenants, uh, how have the properties been? How have the tenants been? You know, what's, what's up with that? Yep. So pretty turnkey all around. You know, there wasn't too much updating to do. And I think for your first year properties, especially if you are a beginner, I probably would recommend starting with turnkey. Uh, unless you're extremely savvy with construction and you want to do a lot of rehab, that's totally fine. Uh, but at least for me, who's not necessarily uh, extraordinarily ha handy or has too much knowledge about plumbing or electricity, anything like that, um, I, you know, I, I would definitely say start with turnkey properties just to make your life a little bit easier. And not only are you going to get uh, a deal that's ready to go, so you don't have to wait months and months and months to rent it out, which it's tough right now, especially with the labor shortage, to find contractors that can get something done that quickly um and the tenants you know have been all around very good definitely you know a headache here and there but that's to be expected and that is my job as a landlord and you know as long as you're on top of things and you're communicative with the tenants and um you address a lot of the problems beforehand before a tenant moves in that's also important and you know that, that's why you don't buy a piece of garbage a piece of dump that uh, has so many things wrong with it you know as long as it's functioning and doing well and all the systems are good and also very important walk through it with an actual inspector uh, I've heard horror stories on these Facebook groups I'm in where people just walk in with like an uncle or friend that says they can inspect a property and they don't want to pay that 500 bucks for property inspector. So that's so important because you can find things that you'd have no idea that were wrong with that property. 
Yeah, I love that. And I just want to emphasize something you said for the listeners. I also agree. Turnkey, uh, both of the, my rental properties I've purchased have been turnkey. Um, I'm not very handy dandy, Bob the Builder type of stuff. I am very hands off. Um, but yeah, I, I do because, you know, I just don't think that the first property you need to be learning how to put on a roof or dealing with contractors because uh, with today's current situations, it's hard to say this, but there are, there are no workers. And so the contractors that are working are working for the people that they've already built relationships with. They've already um, built relationships with. So just be mindful going into that. Any listeners who are thinking about getting like a value add property and stuff like that. But yeah, I also do turnkey, at least for my first two rentals I've purchased. So, oh my God, there was a question I was going to follow up with. Hmm. Oh, oh, well, I was actually going to emphasize because you self-manage and you said that uh, how many hours a month do you think you spend managing, maybe answering phone calls or scheduling stuff or how many, how many hours a month? Not too many. I would probably say no more than four or five hours a month. It's really, you know, most of, most of it's done by text anyways. And I, I know some good plumbers and uh, handy people already in, in the local areas that the properties are in. So I have these connections already. And, you know, you definitely want to find that network, whether it's your agent, a mortgage broker, handy people, a plumber, you know, just kind of build up that network. And that's what that's going to save you a lot of time once you have someone to reach out to right away. And especially for me, not working a W2, working from home, uh, being an entrepreneur, it's much easier for me to manage uh, these properties on the side, on, you know, just, just using my cell phone, whether it's through a text or a phone call. Than if I was at a job and I had to attend to something uh, during during my job. Yeah, yeah. I just want to point out, you know, that's four to five hours a month. But imagine, uh, I like to compare. Okay, on average, managers cost about ten percent of your gross rents. So if you take your ten percent of your gross rents and you pay yourself that, I'm sure that the hourly wage you'd be earning for five hours a month is pretty, uh, pretty pretty good income in most areas. So that's always how I like to think of it is like, just divide your 10% of your gross rent by how many hours it takes you. And you see if this works. If, if it takes you, you know, 40 hours a week to manage properties, then it might not be right. the best use of your time. But if it's taking you five hours a month to manage properties and saving on average 10% of your gross rents, I think it's, it's a great trade-off. Yep. Yep. And no, definitely I would reach out to a property manager and, uh, when, when I'm ready to get into commercial real estate, you know, but probably starting with 12, 12 units, 24, 36. When I get into those big developments, then I'll, uh, I'll definitely have a property manager. That's not something I want to take on myself. Oh yeah. That's a different beast, man. <laughs> yeah. Those, those apartment buildings, those are a different beasts. So Logan, what are some of the, what are some of your short-term goals that you hope to accomplish within the next six months to a year? Yep. Well, I actually just closed on a HELOC, a line of credit against the second property just like two weeks ago. So now I'm going to be focusing on, on acquiring the next unit. And, you know, this is this is me the first time, obviously, using a HELOC to buy a property because I've only done the first previous ones with cash out of my own pocket. Um, so definitely my goal is to be paying off that HELOC as soon as possible after buying the next property and then just renting and repeating. And it's basically just going to look like exactly what I'm doing now, but at a bigger scale. and find the next one, next one, 
over and over again. Um, definitely, you know, my, my, my first initial goal is to be what I would call financially free. And right now with the income that these properties are bringing in, someone in a completely different area of the country would probably say I'm more than financially free, but being on Long Island, New York, you know, we have uh, different numbers and different mindsets. So, you know, probably once I reach uh, nine, 10 units, I would say I'm financially free. And then from there, that's when I'll truly, truly start to build, uh, you know, a, a larger income and, and larger wealth going into larger properties. Gotcha. So what are some of your long-term goals that you hope to accomplish within the next five to 10 years? And what does the finish line look like for you? Yep. I don't necessarily think there's going to be a finish line. I think uh, I'm always going to be doing it. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about real estate and making content. So I'll be doing exactly what I'm doing now when I'm 50 years old, just at a much, much larger scale and hopefully with a larger audience and more properties. Um, I would say first reaching that initial goal of nine, 10 units would, would certainly set me up for then being able to probably buy properties at a faster rate using that cash flow, and, you know, building my business, building YouTube, more properties, probably getting into other ventures, other business ventures, building other businesses that could certainly be an option down the road, perhaps putting out a book, whoever knows, you know, I don't have necessarily every single second of my life planned out, but I would say next five, 10 years, um, you know, definitely doing everything at a much, much bigger scale. Gotcha. So do you ever think that you'll get to a point where you'll start, you know, deleveraging yourself, maybe paying off properties and, and lowering? Because it sounds like you're, you're in a growth phase and you're, you're utilizing leverage to the best of your ability to gain as many uh, properties as possible. Do you ever think you're going to get to a point where you start deleveraging yourself and you start kind of stabilizing your portfolio by paying off properties and things like that? Or, or are you just a believer in, you know, I'm just going to keep leveraging to a healthy leverage and just continue building and never really uh, just keep debt around to pad your returns? Yeah, no, I don't. I truly don't mind the debt. You know, now with the most recent property, I'm several hundred thousand dollars in debt, but it's good debt. And you have to look at the bank as your partner. Look at it as someone that's going in with you on the deal. Don't necessarily look at the bank as evil, which most people probably do look at banks as quite evil and vicious. But for us investors, the bank is our friend. The bank is our partner in the deal. And as long as the deal works, again, if the numbers don't work now, they're not going to work in the future. So don't try to force that deal. If the deal works now, it will probably work in the future because rents rise you know, at a faster pace than your mortgage payment will combined with the uh, interest taxes and insurance. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't mind the debt, but definitely I will be selling some of my initial properties, then scale up into, into larger uh, complexes uh, using a 1031 exchange. And that, that's definitely, you know, that, that's definitely going to be my goal in the next five, 10 years is selling some of those initial properties and hopefully scaling up into a, a larger apartment complex. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I have no problem. With that. I just like to ask it just because, you yep. know, there's, there's so many different people, especially in the real estate space where, you know, a lot of people are uh, debt adverse or, or debt. I don't want to say fearful, but they they uh, they're very the debt doesn't let them sleep at night too well. So yep. at some point they decide to start paying it down or whatever. But like for me, I'm going to get to a point where I reach my, let's call it FI number, whatever units that is. And then I'm going to start paying down debt as far as I can tell right now. But, you know, everybody has their own cup of tea. So it's, it's awesome to hear that, you know, it doesn't bother you as much, especially because it's debt on assets, man. It's like the debt's yep. going down and the assets are going up. So it's like. Yep. Yep. Now, some people are terrified to, to take on this debt, you know, where we're leveraging 80% of the property. 
and have the Dave Ramsey mindset of having zero debt and not ever getting into one penny of debt. But it just doesn't work with real estate uh, unless you want to take 80 years to, to get your second property. It simply won't work. Yeah, I definitely think it definitely slows you down doing the Dave Ramsey, but um, more risk, more reward. And so that's what we got to look at it. So Logan, let's go into the final questions of the podcast. And of course, I ask these same questions to every single guest that come on. Are you ready? I do feel ready. Yep. All right. Question number one. Everyone has their own definition of what it means to have financial peace. What is your definition? Yep. So I would say not only being able to take care of yourself, but the generations that are to come, obviously your family included, and having a comfortable lifestyle where if an emergency comes up, if you want to go on a vacation at any point in time, if you want to just stop working, you know, for a month or two, or if you want to just take a year off and, you know, maybe, maybe when I am 30, 40 years old, I'll decide I just want to take a year off and pursue something totally different instead, like whether it's music or, or sport, whatever, and, and being able to do that and have that ability I think it is truly financial freedom, just being able to drop whatever you're doing and still having that money work for you while you're sleeping, while you're eating, while you're exercising, no matter what you do, still have money working for you when you're building up your net worth as well. And being able to take on anything that might come up, whether it's an emergency or an expenditure, you know, people just don't realize how expensive living is. And we live in a money world and that's not going to change, at least for my generation, the next generation, the one after that, we're still going to be living in a money world. And it's not going to change. No politician or president is going to change the fact that we need money to survive. And so that's why I'm so dedicated to, to being financially free is knowing that how important it is and how important it is for the generations to come. Wealth gives you options. Logan's going to be laying on a beach somewhere in the Bahamas, painting the next Mona Lisa and not worried about it, having his money work for him. I love it. So if there are listeners out there that want to start building wealth and they have no clue where to get started, what would you tell them? Yep. So luckily we live in the year of 2022 and we have an unlimited, innumerable amount of resources and information at our fingertips. So as long as you have the internet access, you can gain a wealth of knowledge that it might take multiple lifetimes for someone to have done otherwise uh, in the past. So definitely gain that knowledge and Look at something that you are passionate about. You know, I would definitely say take a complete audit of your day, take a complete audit of your finances and your expenses. That's the number one step is really looking at what's coming in and what's coming out, no matter what you do, even if you're not even a money person and you think money is evil and you think the entire secret to life is not money. Just look at your day, look at your expenses, and you probably have to revamp everything. You probably have to completely change your daily routine. You probably have to change your entire, entire financial life because it's probably not working out for you. Um, so definitely start with yourself and paying yourself first, paying down that debt, whether, meaning, meaning bad debt, whether it's credit card debt, your student loans, and starting with that. And then you can now look into actually investing on the side and, and start putting your money in other areas. Okay, so Logan, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. So how do you suggest that people decipher the fluff from the actual long-term wealth building good advice? Because there's so many gurus out there, you know what I mean? Like, what is your suggestion on how to find the good content, the good education? Yep. So definitely do your due diligence, do your research on anything that you see, whether it is something that is stable or, or might be fluff. Do that research and, and look at experienced, you know, there's so much people, so many people on YouTube that share their experiences with whatever it is, whether it's a certain asset or investment, 
or a certain business, just look at people's experiences and, and see what they're saying. And, you know, the chances are that if it's good to, too good to be true, it probably is that old, that old adage. And I would say that do look at the stable investments. And we talked about cryptocurrency earlier and, and other unstable investments. And, you know, the answer is, is that if you have the disposable income and you could afford to lose all that money, by all means, no one is stopping you from putting your money in there. Uh, but, but definitely go towards those stable investments. Now we are young, you know, we do have more liberty and freedom to experiment. We have some more flexibility with that, that we could afford to lose money at an early age. But, you know, for me, I, I don't want to lose all my money right now. I want to make sure I'm on a good path. So that's why I do gravitate towards the more stable proven investments. Yeah, I love that. And I just want to add in, um, anytime you're taking advice from someone, just ask yourself, what do they gain from me doing this? And most of the time, the people who have nothing to gain, like for this podcast, like I gain nothing if you go buy term life insurance, because I don't sell life insurance. And I have nothing to gain if you go and create a will. So go create a will and go pay someone to create a will. It's like, I gain nothing from giving this advice. So I say always just look at what do they gain from giving you this advice? Now, if they're trying to sell you a course, okay, then you know what? They might have some bias. Or if they're trying to sell you a policy, a whole life policy or something like that, they might have some bias towards it. So then that's just one way that I like to decipher the... I'm just going to say the good guys from the bad guys, because there are tons of bad guys, but there are also tons of good guys in this personal finance space. And there are more than one way, you know, there's definitely more than one way to build wealth. There's not one simple answer, one blanket answer for everyone. Many people build wealth in many different ways. So certainly you could, it could be something that you're passionate about and make that your side hustle, make that your job, make that your gig. Um, but, but certainly there's more than one way to do something. I love that you pointed it out, man. Cause there really is no one way. It's not you, the only way to build wealth is this. It's not true. It's just it never has been true and it never will be true. So question number three, Logan, if there's one thing you could advise everyone to avoid doing to build wealth, what would that be? It's a good question. You know, I'm a, a big proponent of not going to college if you truly believe that it is not for you. And so, you know, I have friends that go into business class and I get a degree in business. I asked them how much the degree was and they said it was $100,000. One of the first rules of thumb of business is not to get into ridiculous amounts of debt if you don't have a profitable business. So, you know, it's probably not the answer. And if you truly don't think college is for you, then I would not do it. In this day and age, it is simply not necessary. And for most people, they will gain absolutely nothing from it and they will only lose time and money. Yeah, don't go to college to figure it out. That's like... Why would you go and pay money to people? Just try and figure it out. That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, question number four. If there's one, if there is someone out there that doesn't believe they can reach financial peace due to their age, race, religion, sexual orientation, et cetera, what would you say to change their mind? If they don't believe financial freedom is attainable? Yeah, I would say that there are certainly people that have done it in every race, background, religion, creed background doesn't matter people have done it and if someone that looks like you has done it then it certainly is possible and while you might be limited by your neighborhood or where you grew up from or your block or the people that you went to school with or your teachers and most of our generation is pretty limited and you know but luckily we have the internet and we have technology to connect and uh, you know learn from people that way so 
don't just look at the people around you, but definitely look online. And there's probably people that have your mindset and know that, you know, that want to do what you want to do. Um, I would say also that, um, you know, it's also not a, a race, right? That it is not a get rich quick thing. So while it may look like someone our age has, has kind of done it overnight is making millions of dollars, someone our age, that probably didn't happen without a lot of work, or maybe they did get a little bit lucky or they found a niche market, you know, opportunity that they jumped on. So it's not a race and it is a long process and you need your, you need to do your due diligence and be disciplined with uh, investing your money and, and uh, building that over time. I love that, man. I love that. It's, it's not a race. And, you know, we're not competing with each other. You're just competing with your past self. As long as you are better than you were yesterday, you are, you're winning. Right. But it's not, it's not a competition. You know, I'm not trying to get richer faster than Logan and Logan's not in competition with, you know, Becky down the block. He's, he's running his own path. I'm running my own path. And even if we have different obstacles on our paths, we're still running, you know, we're still running the race. I like to call it. Logan, this has been such an awesome interview, man. I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story and giving more inspirations. Cause I, I one thing I love, man, I love talking to Gen Z because we're not all, we're not all entitled. We're not all uh, living for today, forgetting tomorrow. Some of us have delayed gratification. Some of us are trying to build for the long term. So Logan, where can people find out more about you? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So I'm mostly active on Instagram and YouTube. So on Instagram at Logan Cohn, a lot of people get the last name misspelled it is K-O-H-N. And then on YouTube, same name, Logan Cohen. You can find me on my channel and we upload videos there every single week. No exceptions, no excuses. Awesome. And of course, guys, I'm going to have Logan's Instagram and YouTube linked in the show notes below. You are not going to have to go far. All right, Logan, I really appreciate you coming on, man. I appreciate you sharing your story. And I really think it's going to inspire so many people to realize like, you know, even you can start here. You don't have to wait until you're 30. You don't have to wait until all of these different things happen. You can just choose to start today and know and be confident that it's going to benefit down the road. It's just going to continue compounding. I like that. I like that a lot. Absolutely. It's never too early to start and don't let your age uh, define who you are or limit your beliefs or opportunities. I love it, man. I'm going to get up out of here, Logan. I appreciate you coming on, and I hope you have a blessed rest of your day, man. You as well. Appreciate it. And guys, that was my interview with Logan. I really hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. Like I said, it's so great to have Gen Z come on and share their wealth building process. You know, the whole point of this podcast is to reach out to Gen Z for to let them know, like, listen, guys, you can start building wealth and you can do it today, regardless of what position you're in. You can make the change today. And the more work you put in right now, today, the less work you have to do in the future. So it's great to hear these success stories from the younger generation, because hopefully it gives hopes not only to our generation, but the generations preceding us like millennials and the, or, and the generation behind us, which is, I don't even know the new generation, but I got to get to know them. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. Of course, we talked about also don't go to college to figure it out, guys. That's not the place to go. It's a very expensive way to figure out what you want to do in life. 
But I'm going to get up out of here, guys. I really hope you guys enjoyed the interview. And, of course, we're back every single Sunday, 9 a.m. sharp. Make sure you guys tune in. But I am your host, James Bowman. And always remember, you're only as secure as your ability to perform. So spend your life accumulating assets that can perform for you. Later, guys. Oh, 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 o